Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I have a very special guest with me. His name is Gary Ingram, and we are going to be doing a special two-part episode. Uh, he is on the board of directors of the Restored Hope Network, and he is also the founder of the Love and Truth Network. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Teresa. Great to be with you. What is the Restored Hope Network, and then what is the uh, Love and Truth Network? Sure. So Restored Hope Network was started about six years ago when uh, a number of ministries, uh, longstanding, uh, many ministries that have been around for 20, 30 years, had to leave another organization called um, Exodus International because Exodus was no longer uh, representing those ministries um, that that were part of the founding even of Exodus. As those ministries left, um, because they they continued to hold to an orthodox uh, traditional understanding of human sexuality, it made sense for those ministries to form a new umbrella organization, which is a membership organization. And, uh, and so Restored Hope Network really was birthed um, out of that, uh, kind of out of that crisis, really. And, and to fill a gap, um, there, it's the largest uh, ministry uh, in the country dealing with homosexuality and LGBTQ issues from a very loving, uh, compassionate, and redemptive uh, transformational approach. So um, Restored Hope Network is, a, is an umbrella ministry that has uh, about 60 or so ministries, churches, uh, counselors who are members currently within the United States of uh, Restored Hope Network. And how did you yourself get involved in this particular ministry? Well, my wife, Melissa, and I had been involved with Exodus International back when it was uh, a really solid uh, organization grounded in biblical truth around the issues of human sexuality. And uh, and then we also uh, had to uh, depart that organization, unfortunately. And so when Restored Hope Network was formed um, by some of the ministry uh, friends and partners we had, we had had over the years as well, um, when we started Love and Truth Network, uh, we wanted to make sure that we were also connected with uh, a kind of a larger um, uh, scope of ministries across the country. So that's what um, connected us uh, to Restored Hope Network. We, we certainly believe in, I mean, our ministry even adopted um, uh, their, their, not their mission statement, the statement of faith, uh, because it's, uh, it's just so well-worded and well-grounded in scriptural truth. We are going to cover two topics today. And the first one that we kind of want to touch on, and admittedly, this is a hornet's nest, because if you look on the news, you know, you start talking about LGBT, this and that, there's an automatic divide. And even the Supreme Court has weighed in saying that they have the right to uh, such things as marriage and this and that and the other. So how and, and then it doesn't help that the church has actually not really helped our cause. So that be as the backdrop, when you're dealing with someone who is involved in um the homosexual lifestyle or alternative lifestyles, how in your mind should it be approached? So I am not opposed to same-sex partners having rights and privileges uh, such as making sure that they have access to one another. If there's, um, you know, if there's a, a hospital situation, they certainly should not, just because they're not married, they shouldn't um, uh, be excluded from uh, caring for their loved one or being, um, you know, a, a part of that process. And that's just one um, small but important area. Uh, you know, the idea that that uh, the state um, would sanction two individuals of the same gender uh, to uh, even as a civil union, um, I'm not nearly as um, opposed to that idea. The issue for me as a Christian is that marriage was God's idea, and and marriage, according to the Bible, um, is really the one metaphor that uh, that describes Christ in the church. And it, it gives us uh, a physical, natural uh, picture of, of a spiritual reality. And Jesus in Matthew 19 was very clear when he affirmed two genders, male and female only, not hundreds or thousands of them, and uh, or anything beyond two genders, male and female. And then also he affirmed only um, one man and one woman uh, in marriage, uh, in that context, um, you know, for life, that's God's design. That's God's desire. That's God's purposes for us. 
So again, because that union of one man and one woman um, married uh, is, is what uh, is the metaphor for Christ in the church, it's really important that we're not messing with that. And so just because the state uh, or federal government has, has said, yeah, we're re- going to redefine marriage, marriage is not redefined in any way, shape or form from God's perspective. And so, um, you know, so I think that's, you know, that's an important piece that we need to remember as Christians as well. And now we're in a country that actually, you know, has uh, redefined that. So how do we live in, in that situation? I think we need to be, um, I think the church should be known as the most uh, loving community to the LGBT community and uh, as much as they will allow us to be. And the church has a really bad reputation and has earned it, frankly, uh, in a lot of respects for how for you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago and, and beyond, how the church has really ostracized and treated uh, people that experienced same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria just as um, it, very hatefully, actually. They might have said, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, but the truth is they hated the sinner as well, and uh, many people anyway. And what, what my wife and I often say when we're doing conferences or teaching or whatever is that the current condition of the culture we really believe, and we love the church. This is not, we're not being snarky toward the church. We love the church. The church has rescued our lives and so many others. Um, but really the condition and the culture really lies at the feet of the church and how we've done a really lousy job of, of loving those um, and, and loving and, and offering a better alternative to people dealing with same-sex attraction and, uh, and uh, gender dysphoria. Now, when we're talking about loving, I mean, because what they will say is, well, if you love us, you'll accept us as we are and yeah. accept what we're doing. Right. That's a great point, Teresa. And so, um, you know, love has been misconstrued from everything. You know, I love this food or I love that thing or I love that movie or I mean, we, we use love in some of the in, in some of the most kind of menial ways. But actually, love, authentic love for another person, when it comes down to it, when I love somebody, I desire their best. And, and, and if I desire their best, then I'm going to desire uh, that, that the one who created them, the one who is their designer, the one who is my designer, I want them to live and thrive within the context of how he created us to, um, uh, to live. Uh, so love actually is not, oh, hey, I don't want to cause, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I just want to uh, if you're feeling a certain way, then um, we want to come alongside of you and just and say, hey, that's great. You be whoever you want to be, whether whether you're a man who wants to be a woman or if you're feeling I mean, there's there's literally, you know, articles and um, and, and material out there that uh, where people are feeling like they are um, they're actually cross species, you know, that they've that they somehow have been um, they're They're not only not not human or they're not not just not male or female. They literally um, are some other kind of species as well, and I and I know that that's an extreme example. But the it's, but the when you open up the door and you start accepting right that kind of thing, you kind of open up a Pandora's box because once you say yes, you're going to allow this to happen, then that means pretty much anything goes. Well, it does, and I think one of the one of the medical. Uh, issues or, or mental health issues um, that is still recognized today as a mental health issue is um, body integrity um, dysmorphia. And what that is, is when somebody has literally people, there are people who agonize um, in feeling like a, a certain part of their body does not belong to them. Like it's a natural, healthy part of their body, but for them, it feels like it's it, it belongs to somebody else. It doesn't belong to them. It may be their left arm. It might be their foot. It might be some other part of their body. And they they have an intense desire for that uh, part of their body to be amputated. In that case, I mean, right now, we would recognize that as still being, wow, th- this person uh, needs some real counsel and support. We want to we don't want to just lop that thing off and say, sure, we'll just do whatever you want to do. But when it comes to for example, the transgender issue, that's exactly what we're doing. We're not looking at trauma. We're not looking at their history. They're, it's actually considered um, unkind and, um, and completely inappropriate for a counselor to even bring up the idea that if you uh, have um, gender, dys- or, uh, yeah, gender dysphoria, that you actually may be um, experiencing the results of trauma or some kind of abuse or, or something from your background that could be feeding into that. And so, you know, these days it's, it's not even um, recommended or frankly even allowed uh, for counselors to even bring up those ideas. 
yeah, I was going to bring that up. A lot of the, because uh, I, I follow a lot of, um, uh, a lot of culture issues through a political lens or, or a legal lens, even, you know, that way. Sure. One of the organizations that I, that I would kind of follow is bringing up the fact that like there are laws that are being passed that say you cannot, or there are laws that are proposed, especially I believe out in California. California yeah. Yep. That says you can't even propose any kind of um, reference to trans, transformative change or anything like that there's like three laws out there and so and 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 it's really hard to talk about this issue without bringing in the political side of things because it has been so vehemently politicized how and and then you've got the question of okay um how is the christians supposed to respond to this owing to the fact that they are so vehement they're almost radical in what they want. Well, I wouldn't even say that, that it's almost. And I think what we have to really be careful of as Christians, though, and, and this, is, this is a very key point that I hope um, listeners will take away with them, is that uh, your, average, your average transgendered person is not on the front lines of activism. And, and, you know, but it, we really need to separate kind of the activist uh, movement from uh, the everyday person uh, who who is experiencing same-sex attraction or um, or is uh, gay identified or trans uh, identified or whatever, we, we need to separate that out so that we can still have real compassion for people um, mm-hmm. and and still be able to stand and resist an ideology. And I love what um, Joe Dallas uh, writes about. Uh, he's he's just a great author. If anybody wants to to um, to explore some of his books and some of his writings. Anything that he writes is excellent on these topics, but it's the idea of defending without attacking. But in order to do that, I think we as Christians have to recognize that we have to separate out the ideology which we stand against uh, versus people that we're for. We're not for the behaviors. We're not for um, you know embracing a particular lifestyle that is that is clearly against Scripture. But we can be for people. We can be really compassionate and loving for them. And honestly. We also need to make space for them to be able to live out, you know, their their desires. I mean, they have a right to do that. Uh, we can still, um, in lo- in love and compassion, um, speak truth, and and particularly those those of us who come out of homosexual histories uh, and and you know trans identity, and and God has really uh, done a a work of recovery and and transformation in our lives. We need to certainly be um, speaking about that and, and sharing too. But one thing I just want to mention to clarify the the California situation is that there are currently three bills being proposed, and 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 this really exposes what we knew they were after all along. Even when uh, again the at the activists have been after all along with regard to um, when California passed the ban on um, on minors being able to receive counsel from uh, you know, qualified, competent, experienced counselors. Uh, California was the first uh, to ban that. I think there are now 10 states, including um, the, uh, the District of Columbia, uh, D.C., that has also done that. But the, the thing that's so, that is so disconcerting about these bills, one in particular, all three of them are bad, but one in particular uh, would actually outlaw um, not only licensed counseling, but would actually um, impact the church's ability, pastor's ability to to speak about it. Would it would impact? Um, I mean, books could not even be um, promoted that that believe in a and support a Christian worldview when it comes to um, LGBT issues. No matter how loving, no matter how um, gracious and kind they're kindly they're written, um, those books would be uh, banned in California. And uh, oh wow. They, yeah, yeah, right. So it's a it's a sweet and it's for all adults. I mean, it's for everyone. Talk uh, about freedom of. Children. I mean that 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 gets in the freedom of press, freedom of religion, freedom oh, absolutely. of speech. Right, and and <laughs> what's happening is um, the religion of of um, of sex, the religion of sexual identity, and it is a religion. It, you know, people may say they're atheists, but um, the the issue that is driving uh, the ideology really has taken on a form of religion. And so that is now trumping traditional religious freedom uh, in our wow. country. And, and so the bills have not yet been passed. And there are many people, Restored Hope Network and, and many other organizations, Alliance Defending Freedom, so thankful for them, and, 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 and uh, Liberty Council and so many others that are defending uh, the rights of, 
of individuals and, and uh, organizations to live in a way that's congruent with their faith. But California is really working hard at passing these bills. And we know that if, if these bills or even one of these bills get passed in California, it's only a matter of time before it starts to make its way into other um, uh, states in the country. I mean, that's that. Wow. Wow. I mean, because the way I'm, I'm picturing that impacting uh, even this podcast, I couldn't promote a book in California then. Right. So so there's um, I mean, we're not sure exactly how the we what we want is to see these things. I mean, it, it's utter, utterly ridiculous that around this one issue, uh, one of the tenets of the mental health uh, field has always been the right of self-determination. And what these bills are trying to do is to um, gag, punish, and uh, any contrary view. And what this means is then people with unwanted same-sex attraction, they want to live in a way that's congruent with their faith. Boys and, and girls that have been sexually abused by someone of the same gender, or mm. uh, you know, they recognize that, hey, this is, this is I, w- I was abused at a, at a very early age by a man as a boy, perhaps. I have friends that have been in this situation. I experienced some of this. We could not go then and find a counselor who could actually work with us. And in this case, what these bills are proposing, what this one bill is proposing in California is that um, even pastors would be um, uh, handcuffed from being able to, um, or they, well, they, they will face um, stiff, stiff fines and potential um, uh, uh, prison sentences as a result of, um, of helping somebody uh, walk through this. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable. The idea that you're going to shut up a pastor and tell him you cannot preach on this, right? I mean that. I mean, wow. Uh, as much as I want to go down that rabbit trail, I am not going to. Sure, that's that's <laughs> uh, enough said, really. Yeah, yeah. That is just wow. Um, so let's shift a little and let's talk to, about what are. I mean, because we. I mean, we we we've hit on the, the Christian side of things in the sense of how the Christians should really respond. And obviously we really want to keep in prayer this, this, this California issue. What about the person who says, Hey, I'm in the church, but I am struggling with these LGBT issues or, or the person that is, I want nothing to do with church. And I, but I have these issues. How did you kind of grow up and how did you get out of it? Sure. So I grew up in a Christian family. Um, We lived in, upstate New York, a very rural area, went to a very small little country church. And I was the, I am the youngest of five kids. And I was a surprise baby and it wasn't a happy surprise. Um, I'm the youngest, I'm I'm five years uh, younger than my next oldest sibling. And my parents were very poor. My family was pretty poor. Uh, My dad was kind of anxious to see the kids sort of grow up and and move on and and, uh, for he and mom to uh, kind of have a little bit more of a life together after all that. So when they found out I was the, that my mom was pregnant, they were not at all happy in either one of them. And then when I was born, my mom really came around to love me well. And uh, I have three older brothers and, and one sister, but my dad just never, I mean, he didn't hate me, but he didn't, um, he didn't make any attempt to form any kind of a bond uh, with me and, or, or do anything with me for that matter. I, I remember one instance um, and it, it's, it's a very minor thing of ever doing anything with my dad, just the two of us. And later on in life, my dad and I became very close, probably after I was in my mid twenties or early thirties or whatever and beyond. Uh, it, you know, and I got to take care of him on, on hospice uh, in our home when he died. He lived with me for about 10 years. My mom for about 15 years. Uh, she lived about five years uh, longer than he did. He was 88. My mom was 92 when, when they passed. And, and I love the fact that I was able to have them in my home and and uh, have that relationship and all that. But growing up, it, it was it was anything but um, a good and amicable, uh, enjoyable kind of relationship, particularly with my dad. And so, you know, I grew up going to church uh, from the time I was that I can remember. And, and what I experienced both in my home and in, in church, and uh, and certainly in, in the public school and even in Christian school, uh, kind of bounced around a little bit. There was this ostrac- um, being ostracized from the world of boys and men. I wasn't good at sports. Um, I was extremely shy. I had some very early exposure to pornography by some older neighborhood boys um, after school one day, and and uh, as, some of, as well as some of their homosexual behavior. And and that just shattered me at about five or six years old, and mm. and and stole away my innocence. Um, there was a deep shame that set in, and at the same time, what happened is 
in the absence of my dad's uh, attention uh, initiative in my life, in the absence of my older brothers, um, it's totally understandable as I look back that they wanted to kind of hang out with their friends. Uh, they don't want their, you know, kid brother running around. So, you know, so they're like 10 and 12. And uh, my oldest brother was married down the house by the time I was born. So uh, my two older brothers really were the ones that um, uh, when they're 10 and 12 and I'm five, uh, they don't want me running around with them and their friends. And I understand that now, but it is a little kid. It was just more and more rejection. And and so everywhere I turned, I felt like, um, you know, particularly in the public school system, being beaten up every day, having books knocked out of my hand, walking down the hallway every day. Uh, you know, I, I just really quickly learned that the world of boys and men was just unsafe. I felt very fearful in it. And so the only place I felt safe was in the world of girls. And so I really marinated through all of my developmental years as a boy uh, with my mom, my sister, and, uh, and girls at school and girls at church. And mm. to say that that had no impact on my development is, you know, frankly, utter nonsense. Anybody, you know, you know we have such an educated um, world these days, and yet we've lost all common sense. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's so obvious that that um, has, you know, that that played a, a major <laughs> role. So when I hit puberty, um, you know, I, I was an immediate porn addict, uh, as well as, um, you know, I knew everything about girls. I, 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 they were my friends. I was almost one of them. And uh, the gender that was intriguing to me, the gender that was mysterious to me, uh, was my own gender. And, and I had never, I had not been able to go through the natural kind of stages of, of, of development and, and relating to my own gender and kind of being sharpened by my own gender uh, and sort of knowing who I was in relationship with my peers and with my dad and, and my brothers and things like that. I didn't have any of that. I grew up with this with a legitimate, I mean, God gives us as boys a legitimate need to bond with our own gender and to know who we are in relationship to our gender. And in the absence of that, and then the early sexualization and the hardcore porn that was shown to me, and then the stuff that I'm looking at afterward, all of those needs became sexualized. Mm. And so, um, so again, I'm going, going to church. And what this wound up doing is it really split me off internally. So I'm living one way and hating it on the one hand, and yet, uh, in terms of pornography and masturbation and all that uh, crazy stuff and getting involved um, sexually with the neighborhood boy and, and that going on for quite a while. And then, um, um, but I'm going to church. And um, uh, so it was, there was a lot of confusion. So I really grew up also with this sense that God and I prayed and prayed for God to take these feelings away. And of course, nothing happened. And I just became very angry with God. Um, I didn't know what else I should be doing. It just felt like I, I was praying and agonizing over this and he was doing nothing to help me. Now I look back and for a number of years, I've realized God's heart was broken over what I was going through. He means for his church to minister to one another. He means for the body of Christ to have eyes to be able to come alongside of somebody like me, or even as adults that are wrestling and struggling that, and we'll talk about this in the next, um, you know, in our next segment, I'm sure. But just to say here, um, uh, pornography addiction and sexual sin in the church, heterosexual stuff is rampant. Uh, we're talking, you know, 50 to 70% of your average church going guy has a, a sexual brokenness issue or a pornography addiction, 20 to 30% of Christian women, and even as high as 50% of Christian leaders are dealing with some form of either pornography um, use or, or sexual brokenness. Those are huge statistics in the church. Mm. And, um, and so when, when kids are growing up in the church or new people are coming into the church, most churches are, are um, unintentionally promoting that we live double lives, that we, do, that we don't actually talk about what we're going through. The church hasn't been equipped and, and just assumes that they can't be in dealing with you know, deep sexual brokenness issues or identity issues or LGBT issues. Uh, and that simply isn't true. Uh, they can be, but we first have to get our own house in order, I think, before we can actually um, be helping in some of the deeper areas of, of gender identity struggles. So let me ask you this. I mean, when you were, when you were going through that issue where you were, uh, you know, broken up and, and now all of a sudden you're in a, uh, a relationship with this boy and you're, and you're exposed to porn and you're all this, I mean, at one point, because you mentioned being angry at God, at what point did you actually see someone within the church step in and realize that there was a problem, or how did you come out of that? 
Um, that's a great question. I here's what I would say is God. As I got older, I, I actually went to a couple of pastors. One of them being mine, and and another pastor in the area that I was living in. Later, my pastor was not a bad man. Uh, he was a good man. And yet when I sat down to try to talk to him, I mean, and it took everything in me, it took years to even work up the nerve. And when I finally, in my, I was probably 16, uh, sat down with him after a service on a Sunday when everyone else had gone home, I think maybe my parents were waiting for me in my car, in the car or something. But, you know, I, I had a little bit of space just with him. I was trying to, to tell him what was going on with me. And as soon as he realized what I was starting to say and, and fumble around about, he was so uncomfortable. He just hopped up and he was sitting in a chair across from me and uh, gave me a little pat on the shoulder and, and said, you're not doing so so bad and left. I mean, that was his, you know, uh, uncomfortable kind of solution, which of course was no solution. And that was incredibly damaging to wow. me. But again, it's not that he, he wasn't trying to damage me. He wasn't trying to shame me. He just had no clue of what to do. And in his own discomfort, he just bolted. And then another pastor that I met with was kind and, 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 took time to meet with me and talk with me. And his solution though, is that I needed to pray more, read my Bible more and memorize scripture, all of which I was doing. And I had stacks of memory verses. And of course he didn't ask me about that. He just assumed I probably didn't. And, and none of that was actually working. And the truth is, as I look back, I don't believe, even though I prayed the sinner's prayer, I don't believe I was a follower of Jesus at all, because the truth is I had grown to really not like God at all. My, my mm. perspective of God is, you're a slave master that demands that we love you and you do nothing to help your people or you're certainly not doing anything to help me. And so I don't want to go to hell. So I'll pray the prayer, but basically I don't like you at all. And so there was no surrender in any of that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I didn't, I wasn't, I look back and that, that is very clear to me, uh, but I didn't know what more to do other than pray the prayer. And, um, and it never seemed to, to take frankly. And, it wasn't until my, my early 20s, after I had gone from public school to Christian school, back to public school, and then homeschooling, uh, and then on to the local Bible college in the area, I didn't know what else to do with my life when I finished homeschooling. And my brother was um, finishing up his senior year. It was actually a Bible institute at the time, now a college. And so I thought, well, I'll apply there. And I did. I got in. Um, after my fourth semester, I did pretty well in my studies and all that in my maybe first three semesters. But I was so uh, inept at having a conversation. I was so full, I mean, riddled with shame that it was very hard for me to even say hello to people and, and to uh, you know, answer. I was starving for a relationship, but I had no idea how to engage in it. I was actually um, booted out of the school in my fourth semester because they were concerned that I was suicidal. And they weren't equipped. And, you know, that, that's understandable. They weren't equipped to deal with that. But for me, when I left the school, I thought, God, I hate you. I hate your church and I can't stand this place and I am done. So um, it was a matter of a few months later. And of course, the enemy had me right in his crosshairs that I found out about a gay bar in the area that I was living and I uh, had no idea it was there. I didn't know where it was, but I kept going downtown and parking my car and walking around until finally one day I thought, oh, here it is. And it took me forever to even get up the nerve. I was scared to death to go in. And uh, finally, I broke the ice, went in. And here's the thing is I found once I went in there and it, it took a couple of days to sort of settle in, I'd go in in the afternoons and it was, it was a very, um, you know, sort of conversational place and all that, but it, you know, it wasn't just um, sort of bizarre in nature. It was very inviting. And, and I felt like I'd finally found my people. I mean, I felt like after growing up in the church and growing up in a Christian home, I didn't feel like I fit in either one. It, the, the, uh, it was euphoric to feel like I finally found people who wanted me uh, who, um, who were like me. And, and, uh, so, I mean, that was, that was incredibly powerful and, you know, the church certainly would condemn and, and people would say, Oh, you should be doing that. And we're so ashamed of you. I had a, uh, one of my favorite, uh, um, aunts, uh, an aunt of mine wrote a letter to me and just, it was scathing, but what she mm. didn't understand is, you know, for the first time ever, I feel like I finally belong someplace and I'm with people that understand me. And I'm with people that want to be with me. I, was, I wasn't wanted. It didn't feel like by anybody, um, including even my birth. So, uh, so it, it was powerful. It took a few years. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man, and I think, or woman uh, commits is outside the body. But the one who sins sexually sins against their own body. And we know that there's lots of sins that damage our body. I think what Paul's talking about is, is at a soul level, 
there's a kind of damage that happens to us through sexual sin that nothing else touches in the same way, that nothing else damages in the same way. And I began to experience that several years into my embracing of and being embraced by uh, the LGBT community. Now, let me ask you this. Growing up, I mean, did your parents have any clue that you struggled in this area? They did have, but of course we do what, um, what, what many families do, which is you don't talk about issues and mm. uh, anything uncomfortable you just don't talk about. And so when I was 16 years old, um, I, had, I, again, had gone and, and stolen uh, some pornography um, and, and had it um, tucked away somewhere, and I was feeling guilty about it. And, and just feeling miserable generally in my, in my life. I mean, when I look back at my childhood, honestly, I, don't, I didn't have nearly as bad of a childhood as many people I know uh, have had growing up, but I don't remember anything positive about my childhood. And uh, I was always miserable and never fitting in. And I, went, I said something to my mom one day, I just finally broke and just said, I think I'm gay. And I was probably about 16 and about the same time that I talked to my pastor somewhere in there and, or tried to. And, and she just, her reaction was, oh, I, I was so afraid you were going to tell me that one day. So clearly she knew something was up, and, uh, um, but we never talked about it. My dad actually overheard uh, my conversation with my mom, but he and I never talked about it. And, uh, and so that was that. And, and you know, the, there was nothing uh, said about that beyond that point. When I went to Bible college, I mean, I, I just didn't talk with anybody. It, it wasn't safe for me to talk with anyone in the church. It wasn't safe for me to talk to my parents. I was trying to struggle and deal with all of this internally, putting all of the blame and all of the lack of support on God's shoulders when, in fact, God means to live out his life through his people. Yeah, it wasn't until my early 20s, after feeling the erosion that I talked about, after being a bartender at a gay bar, after, again, my idea, my longing was out of Bible college when I just rejected God and, and just said, look, this is who I am. You're not doing anything to help me, so I'm just going to live in it, was to find Mr. Right and settle down for the rest of my life. That was my longing. I didn't want to be sexually promiscuous. I didn't want, I mean, any of that stuff. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, um, it's amazing the things that we do that we thought we'd never do, the things that we thought at one time were disgusting that now we find ourselves caught up in. I don't know how many uh, people I've been with because, you know, I mean, I've just lost count. And uh, I don't say, I simply say that to say, even when you have the intention of just uh, finding the right person, the right guy, supposedly, and settling down with him, um, that almost, that almost never happens. And even when you see that, you know, when, when two guys or two women have been together for 20 or 30 years, um, on the men's side, particularly, it's almost always in the context of an open relationship where they're still bringing, you know, guys into their um, sexual, uh, uh, into their bed, basically. And um, it's very rare that there's actual monogamy um, happening within the LGBT community, especially wow. on the guy's side. How did God get your attention? How did, how did he draw you back? As I look back, I just see that God was so patient. And when Romans says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, I knew about that passage, but I thought, oh yeah, what a bunch of crap. God, all you care about, you, my impression of God was he's standing in heaven with a two by four, just waiting for the opportunity to crack us. That's not going to draw somebody to him, right? So every day I would drive home um, from, the, from the bar. I'd, I'd close the bar. I mean, I was so starving for a relationship that I'd stay until two o'clock in the morning. And, and every time I would drive home from the bar, I'd think, this is the night God's going to kill me. This is the night God's going to kill me. And I'd wait, you know, I'd think, oh, there's going to be a deer that runs out or not that that's necessary. But I, I would think of all these situations where God is just waiting to get me. And it, obviously that didn't happen. And, uh, and over the uh, some some time of you know months and years, I just I felt the erosion, as I was saying, of my own soul, and I felt like what this once was is not what it is now. I feel used up, and I feel dirty, and I feel um, I feel like like the like I've somehow sold my soul. And I was living in New Jersey at the time, and I was I had opened up a retail store on Long Beach Island, and I had driven home to upstate New York, about five or six hours away to go and party for the weekend. And I, you know, I had every intention of um, partying to the, to, to the nth degree. And I went up uh, there and I'm calling, um, and I, that's, I think this is even before cell phones, but uh, when I got into the area, um, I made some calls and I couldn't find anybody around. And, and, and what, and I knew clearly, I'm like, God, you are, this is you. 
you're, you're messing my, my plans up to go and have a fun weekend. And I was mad. And so I left early from, from upstate New York and headed back to New Jersey. And for some reason I stopped uh, at a place where I knew there was a record store and I, they had this little dinky tiny section of, uh, of Christian stuff like Amy Grant, Sandy Patty. I mean, back in the day, my wife always thinks that's so funny, but um, these old, you know, these old people. And I, I bought, uh, uh, two cassettes, Amy Grant and Sandy Patty. And I, I don't know what I was listening to. I don't even know why I did that because I'm mad at God and here I am buying Christian music. Uh, but I, I was listening to some of that music on the way back and there was a lyric, there was a, there was a line in there that just the Holy Spirit used to just pierce my heart. And I become so hard. I didn't cry about anything. I didn't, I, I was just a rock. In this lyric, um, it just slew me. And somehow I think described sort of the, the depravity or not depravity, the, the, well, depravity, yes, but the emptiness of my soul. And I just started bawling and I'm driving. Uh, I pulled over on the side of the interstate cause I couldn't see where I was going. And that's when I actually said, Jesus, I have made a total disaster in my life. Um, and, and I don't even know if there's anything left in me that you want, but whatever is in me, if you want it, you can have it. That was my first surrender. That was my authentic salvation. And uh, mm. things changed dramatically in terms of my view of sin, my hunger for God. Like I knew all the things I should do. I knew all the things that were that I shouldn't do, but the Holy Spirit had never come in because my, my deal before was, hey, I want fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell, but that's about it. So um, right. there was never anything authentic until then. What, what was the uh, lyric that had your attention? I have no idea. I can't remember it. Um, I, uh, again, it was just, it, I, all I know is it was something that kind of, that just exposed the emptiness of my soul. I, I, mm. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was Amy Grant or Sandy Patty, which one sang it, but there was something about it um, that God just gave me this window of clarity and sanity uh, to agree that, yeah, I, I am absolutely empty. I, and my, you know, at 21 or 22 years old, I internally feel like an old man. I've been with so many people. I've been so used up. I've used other people. And I am, I, at a soul level, I am just, I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And, and that somehow that, you know, the lyric, I don't think said any of those things specifically, but I just, in, in thinking back, I remember a lot of that stuff is what burst in some of that emotion that I, that I experienced and felt. And when I finally surrendered. John Elridge in a lot of his material he um, he speaks about like very deep what he likes to call term uh, father wounds. When you when you actually uh, made the initial act of surrender after hearing that song, did God then start to work on your your past and the issues that that led you to this place? Or I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, that's another good question. I absolutely, uh, I love a lot of what John Eldridge writes and have been benefited by it as well. Uh, the, the ministry that has been profound um, in both my wife's and my life uh, has been Desert Stream Ministries. And Andrew Kamiski is the, is the founder of that ministry about 40 years ago now. Uh, he founded that ministry. And uh, he comes out of a long history of homosexuality. He's, he's been married for, again, about 40 years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, he and Annette have um, four adult children, three of them married, um, one of them a pastor. I mean, it, it's, it's um, God. And, and, and so in their ministry called Desert Stream, uh, Andrew wrote a curriculum that has been around for, you know, well over 30 years, almost 40 years called uh, Living Waters. And that curriculum also talks a lot about father wounds, mother wounds, misogyny, the devaluing of the feminine, misandry, the devaluing and the hatred of the masculine. Uh, it talks about, uh, there's a chapter in there on, um, you know, personal confession of sin, uh, as well as um, uh, forgiveness, and also a chapter on wounding. There's, there's a lot, uh, I've heard in the church, I grew up with the understanding that we confess our sins. I had no idea until getting involved with Living Waters, I had no idea that, um, that Jesus died not only to bear my sin, you know, for me, but also he died to take on the sins that other people had committed against me. And, mm. and so all my life, I've been living in this pattern of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. And a lot of what um, I am absolutely convinced not only drives, drove me, but drives the Christian community is that there are so many, we all bear, unless we've done a lot of work around these areas, we don't get it out of a childhood into adulthood unscathed, even in the best homes. 
we all come into adulthood uh, with with wounds of some kind, with um, emptiness of some kind, with with sort of emotional infections of some kind, and some of us with really really deep pain, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, rejection, abandonment, all kinds of things. Divorce has has you know the idea that kids are just resilient and bounce back. I mean that's such a load of garbage. Kids are well, so I, impacted by divorce. They they are, but I think a lot of times what happens is they 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 are impacted, but they have to put on the facade. I mean, I know, That's right. I, you know, I think for me, I know growing up, I never, I didn't have the issues of uh, the sexual stuff, but <laughs> my childhood was a train wreck. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it was always the, sure, there's emotional garbage, but you know what? I don't have the time to just to deal with yeah. that. I have stuff no idea how on. to deal with it. So I'm just going to stuff it. I'm going to move on. You know, I'm going to punch the life back in the throat and wipe the blood off. That's how it works. Right, right. You know? <laughs> right. So, and that seems and it, like it works at the time. And it, and, it, and actually helps us get through the situation. And I think a lot of things that we, that in childhood, like we have no control. We just sort of get dragged around here and there, or you know, maybe not dragged around, but in really difficult situations or abusive situations or where everything is chaotic or it's a train wreck, we, we don't have the ability to really do anything about our environment. And so we... we Establish coping mechanisms as kids. We detach. We uh, we we sort of drift off into some other fantasy life, and that might not have anything to do with sexual stuff. But it just um, you know, with, or 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 we uh, just build our lives around books, or we build our lives around friendships. But all the pain we're just detaching from, and so we're learning at an early age how to um, to live in a split off, compartmentalized way. When we get into adulthood. Those those coping mechanisms that helped us get through our childhood actually become prisons, and mm. and they and they get in the way of us being able to relate to our husbands and our wives and um, or our, you know a, a husband or a wife. Um, to um, it, it gets in the way of us being able to build meaningful relationships that go deep and are heart connected. That emptiness or that emotional pain that we feel. It, it, a lot of times that comes about through neglect and, and we just, we don't even, we've so detached from our need for love and care that as adults, we don't even feel that, but we feel numb. We don't, we don't really feel good. We just feel numb. And then many of many others actually feel the pain of the, of the, uh, of the wound or the emptiness, but they don't, it's so familiar. They don't know what to do about it. And so what we do even as Christians is those wounds and that, that pain um, actually drive us toward things like, uh, I mean, sex, sexual sin is a very, very powerful counterfeit for authentic intimacy. So pornography and fantasy and all that goes along with that, or getting involved in this emotionally enmeshed relationship or crossing boundaries, you know, with, with somebody other than our spouse or uh, before we're married, you know, having multiple partners, many times we're looking, we're not just driven by sin certainly is true. Lust. Yep. Certainly true. But on top of that, it's the unhealed wounds that um, that drive many Christians to do the opposite of what they want to do, but in their pain, their loneliness, their emptiness, they chuck what they know intellectually, all the verses, all the theology, and they they go for um, the junk food that meets the need in the immediate. And again, we're going to touch. Uh, we're going to go a lot deeper in the next episode uh, in how the church should deal with some of that stuff. If someone is listening and they're in a similar situation to you, and maybe they're uh, involved in the LGBT lifestyle, what would you uh, say to them? Well, if they're involved in, you know, in homosexuality or struggling with their identity, uh, maybe maybe uh, they are beginning to identify as androgynous or pansexual or any number of other things now that that uh, might describe kind of how they're feeling. First and foremost, I would I would say I understand the the incredible intensity. Of, of those of the desires, um, you know, towards something and towards someone, as well as feeling alien, you know, kind of in my own skin, and feeling um, I, I felt a deep and profound sense. I didn't struggle with transgenderism. I did not in any way feel male. I, I knew that I had a male body, but I felt like I was this sort of third gendered thing. I was almost non gendered in some sense, and that was a very very strong and pervasive feeling. First of all, I want to say. Uh, the pain is real. Uh, what, what, you know, gender dysphoria is, um, I don't, I don't believe that the solutions that are being offered these days in terms of, uh, 
uh, hormone therapy and, and um, uh, surgical sex change and all of that. I don't believe that those are actually um, good and solid solutions. I think that uh, for many people, if you, if you type in detransitioning uh, on YouTube, you're going to see the testimonies of many people that have gone down that pathway and realized after they've mutilated their bodies and, um, and sterilized themselves and done uh, all manner of uh, damage uh, to themselves going down that route, that, 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 that was the wrong direction to go in from the very beginning. And, uh, and it's tragic, uh, to, uh, you know, to see those stories. And by the way, the church should be very, very gentle and very gracious and very welcoming to people who are in that situation, because those people have been kicked to, ter- to the curb, even by the transgender community, because they no longer identify as trans. They're not wanted by anybody. And, and, you know, sadly, except for those, except for the detransitioning community. First of all, I just think that we as Christians need to understand that people are in real pain. People are, are in, in deep loneliness. You know, men who are, are with other men, they're looking for something. They're longing for something that they themselves perceive they don't have. And, I'm, and maybe not even intellectually, like logically, but I think at a deep emotional level, uh, there's, a, there's a longing to, to, to take in and, um, and connect with and be affirmed by and wanted by the very characteristics that we perceive we ourselves don't have as men. And, and again, that's not in every case, but I think that's, that's often the case with those, the hundreds of people I've talked to over the years, that is for many, many, many people, that's been the case and, the, and true for women as well. For many women caught up in, in, uh, you know, in, in lesbianism or identifying as lesbian, they've, they've had maybe terrible experiences with men. Um, they've, they've been in an abusive marriage. Maybe they've never even felt uh, same-sex attracted until after coming out of that horrible marriage and that, uh, that abusive um, situation with a misogynistic guy. They get connected with a woman th- through work or through a Bible study or whatever, who's really understanding. And, and uh, over time, they become emotionally enmeshed and then they start crossing boundaries physically and sexually. And you know, th- there's a variety of ways of how this starts, but we need to understand that people are in deep pain and they, and they're longing for something we're longing for love and we are going about getting it in really misplaced ways. The church needs to be, and this is our primary emphasis in ministry is not so much working with individuals. I do some of that, but so it's much more of um, working with Christian leaders in the church to develop environments where your average heterosexual sexually broken person, which is, you know, more than the than uh, the minority, where they can actually find help and support in their church communities, but where that church community can be transformed into more of like a teaching hospital, where the community starts to learn. The people in the LGBT arena, they start to learn. Somebody caught up in heterosexual pornography addiction outside the church, oh, I'm not going to be beaten up and condemned by this church. They want me to be there. They, they want me to come with all my baggage of stuff so that so I can meet Jesus, so I can I can be loved by them, and God can begin to transform my life, you know? So, you know, I, I would encourage people dealing um, who experience, especially those that experience unwanted same-sex attraction, to look for uh, ministries that can support them, uh, to look for churches that, uh, that are being intentional about providing uh, ministry to them. And I especially like churches that aren't just running a group for same, same, you know, same-sex attracted individuals or maybe men, that's a good place to start. But I love churches that are actually approaching this in more of a holistic manner and recognizing um, sexual struggles flow out of the same root issues for everyone. Um, they may be expressed in different ways and maybe very, very different ways, but they, at, a, at the foundational level, the root issues are the same. And so having men that deal with pornography addiction or have cheated on their wives or whatever in one group with guys that are that are walking out of, um, you know, or, or trying to explore this whole idea of identity and what does it mean to be a man, you know, made in God's image. And th- I think it's really healthy to have them in the same group. So I'd encourage people to be looking for churches that, and that are, that are safe in that arena, but maybe start with um, ministries that uh, they might be able to get involved with. Mm. Well, I can honestly tell you, at least from my side, having a group of people that you can walk and do life with is 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 huge. I mean, it's it honestly huge. I walked away from God very similarly out of anger, um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, losing my mom and my eyesight in the span of one week. Mm. Uh, yeah, that pretty much sent me going. Uh, nope, not interested. I'm done. 
within the past year, I came back to him, but it was a, it was a, a, a couple of really wonderful ladies that um, just walked with me, met me where I was, and you know there wasn't any judgment, there wasn't any of that. It was all right. Let's 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 deal with the issues as they are, you know, because as a result of my walking away from God, I got very heavily addicted to gaming, like text. Uh, base gaming. Yep. And, you know, it was like, I don't want to deal with the crap that's going on around me. I, I'm going to go over here. So I totally get what you're saying. And mm -hmm. I, I totally back what you're saying. You know, it really comes down to if you can get people around you that will, that will just love on you and, and not judge you for what is going on. I mean, obviously sin is sin and we have to call out sin, but there's a huge difference between using a brick and using uh, love. Yes. Yeah. And, no, absolutely. And, yeah. So, well, let's go ahead and wrap this portion up. Do you have anything else you want to say on this topic? Yeah, I do. Uh, actually, going back to a question that you had asked me in terms of um, something to the effect of how, you know, how did I find kind of help and support the church? God had brought a couple of um, of really good guys into my life at different times where they were where they did uh, they tried to walk alongside of me or and, and they did and 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 I was I was growing uh, as well in that process but it wasn't until my early thirties I got I'd come out of homosexuality for for a lengthy period of time and then through some um, it's, there's too much to go into now but through a, a series of, of heartbreak and, and, um, and real difficulty, I became embittered with God again. I went back into homosexuality as a Christian this time, as somebody who actually had the Holy Spirit living inside of them and not just a religious kid. And, and, and that whole experience for um, several years of in and out, one foot in the church and one foot in the gay bars, um, was a miserable experience, and yet I felt addicted. And uh, God finally brought me in my early 30s to a church um, where I emailed the pastor um, I was living in Chicago at the time, and, and I kept hearing about this church that was dealing with really broken people. I've been in many good churches, but none of them as vocal or as um, intentional about ministering to broken people of a variety of sorts, sexually, um, drug addicted. And so I emailed the pastor and just said, my life has devolved into adult bookstores and gay bars and anonymous sex, and I hate what I'm doing, but I don't seem to be able to get out of it. I think I need to leave the Chicago where I was living. And he said, uh, rather than just saying, hey, stay there and, you know, I'll find you some help and support or, you know, maybe I can find you someone to counsel with. He said, if you want to move back here, we'll walk alongside of you, which is unusual. And, uh, and it shouldn't what be. What church was that? Um, it was a non-denominational church in, um, in the upstate New York area. And mm. so I moved back um, at, to, to the area I grew up in where I swore I'd never come back to. I started going to that church and um, got into a small group, got into uh, their, their lay counseling ministry, which was, which was pretty good. And then after a number of months, I really felt like the Lord was leading me to start going to their men's group, which is the last place on earth I wanted to be. Uh, you know, an, an ex-gay guy does not <laughs> want to go to a Christian men's group, right? And, and so I did, and it was out of pure obedience. And it took, I felt like, you know, the elephant, there was an elephant in the room. And, but I could talk shop with, uh, I, I mean, I knew more scripture. I'd been to Bible college and all that. I could talk rings around a lot of the guys that were there. Um, and, and that's what I did for a while and I kind of pretending. And then, um, after a number of months, we went to this promise keepers thing and I thought, well, they're never going to be more spiritual than they are right now. And, uh, so the next time we got together, I just, I finally opened up and just said, you know, I've been involved in homosexuality for years and years for as long as I can remember. I've been same sex attracted. And um, I've had a longstanding pornography addiction. I never want to go back there again, something like that. And I was just mm. hoping guys wouldn't leave the room. And instead, there were about probably 15 guys there, something like that. Uh, instead, the leader of the group got up and pulled me out of my seat and gave me this huge bear hug and said, Gary, we are so glad that you're here and you belong with us. Well, I had never in my life wow. heard from a community of men that I belonged with them. All I'd experienced all of my life is just the opposite. You don't belong here. You're not one of us. So God, God used that church, and I think he wanted to use lots of other churches uh, to, to, to do the exact same thing. But finally, these guys were willing, and these, were, these are redneck farmers and hunters from upstate New York. I mean, they, you know, they didn't know, have a clue of what to do with me. Well, half of the, the group got up and stood behind this guy, stood in a line to each of them hug me. I mean, craziness. 
And uh, God, so that's a stone of remembrance for me. And what I'm always telling men and when I'm speaking in churches or preaching or doing conferences and women too is you don't need a PhD in human sexuality. These guys didn't have a clue of what to do to, with me, except they were willing to say things like, Gary, I don't know what it's like to be same-sex attracted, but I do know what it's like to have a pornography addiction that I just can't seem to beat. I do know what it's like to lose my marriage because I, I was committing adultery or almost lose my marriage because of it. And, and, and the truth is, what you're dealing with is, um, I don't see that as being any different. It was the first time I began to experience guys you know, they had that kind of attitude and wanted me to be with them. So for the first time in my life, I, I finally told my story, you know, it, they knew enough about who, where I was that when they offered love and care for me, when they wanted to spend time with me, when they hugged me, the enemy, the weapon that the enemy lost by me telling them was if they only knew you, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. And I'd lived under mm. that for my entire life. And I believed it absolutely to be true. Well, that was gone. I, I got up and shared my testimony months later in conjunction with the pastor's message. It was a church of about 1,200 adults. It was a big church up there. And uh, so I shared um, my story. And I was expecting, I knew I needed to, but I was expecting, oh gosh, there's going to be all kinds of backlash. There was not a, a negative thing said. And, and people um, wanted me to be, again, a part of the service. They didn't pull back from me, a part of the church. They didn't pull away from me. And uh, eventually I wound up being on staff with that church. I mean, people voted to, for me to come on staff with that church um, after they heard my whole story. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, and it wasn't, it wasn't like they hired me two weeks after coming out of the bookstores. You know, it, it was you know, a couple of years probably or a year and a half after and being in a long, consistent uh, road of recovery. But that, so I became a man at that church. These guys, God used these men to, to, to call out what my dad was not able to call out, didn't know he needed to call out. They were able to, to call out and walk alongside of me in a way that my, this little seed of masculinity that had never formed um, began to take root. I mean, today I love the fact that I'm a man. I love that, I, that I'm a spiritual father, that I'm a father to my two boys, that I'm a wife, to, um, that I'm a husband to my wife, Melissa. And, and that really started, that goodness and that strength started to take form through these, these fumbling, bumbling guys that just did the best they could. Wow. I mean, and, and I, there's, I can't really add anything to that. I mean, that's to me, that's, that's Christ. Be, people yeah. be in the hands and feet. So exactly. I, mean, I, yep. I can't really add anything to that guys, but it happens far too. It, it happens far too seldom. Oh yeah. That's the sad thing. Oh yeah. And, and, and not only that, then the church gets a bad rap because, well, you guys are just being judgmental. And I mean, we need to, as a church, you know, I have always said, love the sinner and hate the sin. And I don't care what it is, um, whether it's homosexuality, pornography, whatever, love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, absolutely. And, uh, but unfortunately that the truth is I grew up around hearing that all the time. And the truth is most of the people that said that they hated the sinner too. I mean, that's mm. just the honest truth. Uh, it, it, it was very, you know, it's, that's a nice little, uh, and I, I, and I know that there are those who actually um, mean that and actually function within that. But in my growing up experience, that was absolutely not true. We said that to sort of give ourselves license to, uh, or, or the people around me to, um, they felt, oh yeah, I am, I'm, I'm, am loving this sinner. No, you're not. You don't want to have anything to do with them. You don't want to touch them. You don't want them near you. You would never sit down and have a meal with them. Don't tell me that that's love. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, well, we are going to pause it here, guys. And when we come back next week, we are going to take up the conversation, not so much of, of uh, uh, homosexuality and the LGBT side of things, but Let's talk. We're going to talk about the elephant in the room, and that would be pornography within the church. So, Gary, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. And, Thanks for having me. And, you know, it's been a wonderful conversation. And, guys, before we go, um, I want you to know look, if this material has blessed you, you can go and check out the show notes and everything. We're going to have all kinds of good, good show notes for you. But, one that if this material is blessed you, can you help me? If you would go to uh, unresult.life forward slash support, you could give as little as a dollar a month, and that would go a long way to helping me keep up and running. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you want me to, if you want to get involved and just get in the conversation, and let's, it, you know, if you're struggling with stuff like this, 
uh, we I have a Facebook group. You can go to unresolved.life forward slash group. Either way, guys, would you share this conversation with someone that needs it? I, I would greatly appreciate it. So with that, guys, I will bring you part two of this conversation next week. And until then, we will speak again next time. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.